0: Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Julianne Gesto and I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy, and I practice as an infectious diseases pharmacist at Prisma Health Richland Hospital. I'm thrilled to bring you today's episode. In past Breakpoints episodes, we've had plenty of deep dives on how to best dose beta-lactams, but we haven't spent nearly enough time on the Robin to our Batman, beta-lactamase inhibitors. So today, Robin gets the spotlight. We're going to review the current state of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of beta-lactamase inhibitors, which I will lovingly refer to as BLIs, and discuss how we can ensure the BLI successfully restores the activity of our Batman, aka the corresponding beta-lactam. I'm honored to be joined by two giants in the field who can help us shed light on this difficult topic. So first I'd like to welcome Dr. Paul Ambrose, who is president of the Institute for Clinical Pharmacodynamics and has had academic appointments at the University of Oxford School of Medicine and the University of Buffalo School of Pharmacy. Paul, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Julie, I'm happy to be here. I have just one quick clarifying question for you. You mentioned Batman and Robin. You meant that I was Batman And Mike's the boy wonder, right?
0: Oh, gosh, I'm not getting in between that. I haven't even introduced Mike yet. The poor guy. He can't even defend himself. All right. So (laughs) next, we have Dr. Michael Dudley, who is president and CEO of Cupex Biopharma based in San Diego. (laughs) Mike, thank you for joining us. (laughs) Aside from Paul coming out swinging with the jokes on Batman and Robin, um, I know you've also been in the news because you guys at QPEX have recently been acquired by Shinogi, right? How's that going?
2: Yeah, first, Julie, really thanks, and it's great to join you and uh, Paul here, and yeah, it's a, it's been a busy summer here, and we're very excited about joining forces uh, with Shinogi. Uh, Shienoge is a company with an impressive record of innovation um, in antibiotics over multiple different decades and recent success in commercializing antibiotics, so we're kind of thrilled to join them. So uh, I'm thrilled to be here too as well, and I will take this opportunity to publicly announce, since you've used the Batman theme here to uh, to state that I endorse, I am on Team DC versus Team Marvel for my
1: superhero fixes. So,
0: Oh, boy. Paul, what about you? Team DC or Team Marvel? What say you?
1: I never watch any of them.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, for the record, I'm Team Marvel, so we have a nice diversity across all of us. Very I really good. love Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm an audiophile, and I love the soundtrack, so... Uh, sorry, Mike. We're on opposite sides of the spectrum already, but regardless,
2: that's all right.
0: <laughs> we're gonna get started. We're gonna jump right on in to talking about BLIs. So, if you guys don't mind, can you help me get a thirty thousand foot view of the current BLI landscape? Can you describe the current BLIs that we have on the market?
1: In a word, I'd say it's really crowded. And historically speaking, it all it all started in the mid nineteen seventies with Pavilane, which everyone knows is a narrow-spectrum beta-lactamase inhibitor that inhibited penicillinases that were very common at the time. And these were mostly TEM1 and TEM2-type enzymes that hydrolyzed second-generation amino penicillins like amoxicillin and carboxypenicillins like ticarcillin. In the early 1980s, other enzymes began to appear like TEM3, and not only did they hydrolyze the amino and carboxypenicillins, but also the first-generation cephalosporins, like cephalexin and some of the second-generation cephalosporins, like cefuroxime. Worse yet, only five years following the introduction of the first third-generation cephalosporin, cefotaxime, in 1980, the ESBLs were identified, and most prominent of them was CTXM15. And by the 90s, CTXM15 had become the dominant ESBL, not only here in the United States, but around the world. And in response to TEM3 and the other 140 ish TEM enzymes that followed. Um, plus, the emergence of the SBLs, Tazobactam was born. And that was a real breakthrough uh, at that time. And you guys all know what came next, and that was the carbapenemases, and then the, the diazobicyclooctane or DBOs like AV-Bactam, Relobactam, CB618, Dirlobactam, and, and several others. And also the boronic acid, beta lactamase inhibitors, like they were back down. Those all came to be in order to address the carbapenemase problem.
2: Yeah, and I guess I'll, I'll jump in here too, Paul. And I, I agree, the The real game changer in this was really um, carbapenemases. There had certainly been some concern with AMP C beta-lactamase and the fact that none of those older um, agents had any inhibitory properties on on AMP-C, but really it was the carbapenemases that really was the game changer. And certainly reflecting back when we started working on that area in terms of innovation um, using the boronic acid pharmacophore, um, there was real concern. As you may remember, uh, we were uh, heavily involved with CLSI at that time. And the reports uh, from the New York City Hospitals of KPC, enzymes really overrunning uh, many of the uh, units um, in New York hospital system was really kind of a game changer in terms of what, um, what we started to think about in terms of innovation and start, started working on then uh, boronic acids as the pharmacophore. But I think as you, as you mentioned there, the, the real change was is that with the older agents um, like tazobactam and sulbactam and clavulinate, those were um, the so-called suicide inhibitors, where they were um, really designed to kind of go, as I say, go down with the ship. So as you, you know, as you sort of uh, uh, took out the the beta lactamase, you took yourself out um, in the fact that uh, that these substances were actually consumed uh, as part of the inhibition. So really, moving on then to carbapenemases and looking at inhibition of carbapenemases, as well as more broadly against other. Uh, enzymes. That's really where the um, the DBOs and the boronates really came into play. You know, for ESBLs, there was always a lot of controversy about whether or not tazobactam was really going to, to be sufficient um, to inhibit um, ESBLs. Uh, and there was always discussions about susceptibility testing and what were the proper breakpoints and and linking that up. And at least for me, I think the Merino trial, I think, sort of sealed the deal on as Uh, showing that really um, tazobactam is um, certainly not a a, a compound that you really want to be relying on to overcome ESBL-mediated resistance. And I believe that some of the recent um, guideline recommendations, even talking about ceftolazane tazobactam in that context, also uh, underscore that.
0: Thank you guys for that. Definitely appreciate that bird's eye view. It, It can be a lot to keep straight, especially for those listeners out there that our trainees and trying to wrap their heads around all the different combinations, not even that are coming down the pike, but that are on the market right now. Um, And I'm really glad that you guys already started painting this perspective for us that, you know, it depends what uh, beta-lactam mazes that we're talking about um, and the partnering corresponding beta-lactam as well. I've got a lot more questions about tazobactam, Mike, so don't worry, I'm coming back to you on that. But before we go into specific items, I just want to ask in general, what PKPD parameter best defines the effectiveness of a BLI to restore the beta-lactam activity?
1: So maybe I can jump in first with uh, providing a short answer. All of the ones we traditionally think about, and sometimes none of them.
0: Oh, fine. So, okay. <laughs>
1: yeah, And our PKPD models uh, for, for tazobactam. The best index that described efficacy was time above threshold, but that's not the case for all beta-lactamase inhibitors. So the PKPD driver for tazobactam, at least in our hands, did not change with the beta-lactam partner. And we've studied it uh, initially with ceftolozane, and then with piperacillin as the partner and then with cefapine. And always time above threshold was the PKPD driver that we identified for ceftolozane. And, and we showed the same thing with uh, clavulanic acid um, and many of the other DBOs. So in, that, in those cases, we often find with the DBOs that AUC to MIC was the best PKPD driver and same for the boronic inhibitors, uh, have all been AUC to MIC driven. We have even had the experience with a DBO where the PKPD driver was none of the above. In other words, AUC did a better job describing efficacy than did any of the traditional PKPD measures. And one reason, and there are a number of reasons one can hypothesize, but one reason that this might occur is that the MIC is wrong. In other words, the, the guys in the microbiology lab have come up with a reproducible MIC test in that static system. But it doesn't really describe the biology when we're looking at a pharmacodynamic environment, like when MIC or drug concentration goes up and down uh, repeatedly over a period of time. There are other reasons too, like I mentioned. And, and now I think it's time for Mike to talk because I know he has some uh, firsthand experience and thoughts in this regard.
2: Yeah, no, Paul. I think that your your summary um, really hits on it. I think a couple things, maybe just kind of going back to um, sort of how to how to think about you know what parameters and and what things sort of um, drive these things. And I tend to think of the uh, first of all for a set of of uh, Batman's and Robins here, or uh, beta lactams and beta lactamase inhibitors. I think there's a couple things that come into play. One is is what is the the liability of the um, partner antibiotic to the beta lactamases in question, and so you were talking about tazobactam with respect to uh, you know the metric that. Um, that, that corresponds to efficacy there. And certainly with the compounds that you describe there are going to be you know, like ceftolazane and piperacillin. those are going to be relatively good substrates of, uh, of ESBLs, for example. And so, so therefore, you know, it's not surprising that time above MIC really does a good job of predicting efficacy for all of those um, compounds. And even cefepime has some liability also um, to ESBLs as well. So uh, that, that certainly is the case. I think the other um, piece of it has to do with, um, in, in addition to just liability, um of that, is, is just whether or not, um, what's the potency of the partner antibiotic a- against them? And how do you How do we express that? And we can start to talk about some of the ways that we've tried to do some comparisons among the um, different beta-lactamase inhibitors and asking the questions about, you know, what's the concentration of inhibitor that you need to have to essentially bring the partner beta-lactam's MIC. Down to a level that you would kind of imagine if you were to magically wipe beta lactamase gene off of the bacteria. So that essentially to an isogenic strain that has no beta lactamase. And those, I think, are going to be important metrics in terms of how you not only compare beta lactamase inhibitors, but also how you choose combinations agents, because that's, that number is going to be different depending on what your partner agent is.
0: Okay. So, in summary, it can vary, but. For many BLIs, what I'm hearing from you both is that the best PKPD parameter is probably either going to end up being time that free drug is above the threshold concentration, such as what we've seen with tazobactam and those corresponding beta-lactams we discussed, or for some of the newer BLIs uh, like the DBOs or the boronic acid inhibitors, it may end up being more like free AUC to MIC. Did I get that right?
2: That's correct.
0: Awesome. This is fascinating and exactly why we wanted to do this as an episode because it's complicated. I'd much rather have you guys teaching it to us than me trying to read all this on my own. So thank you. Okay. So we've talked about a lot of different variables in quote, the probability machine that could predict a variety of exposure response relationships that we might be trying to model to determine the best PKPD parameter. However, I'm going to take a step back for a second, and I do struggle when trying to teach learners who are coming to this for the first time how to even interpret the little that we do know for what has been published as a PKPD parameter of interest for a specific bug-drug combo. So if you'll you know, humor me for a moment, I'm going to walk through an example, and I want you guys to tell me if I'm interpreting this correctly. Sound good? Yep. Okay. So if I'm reading a publication that describes the threshold concentration as a function of the isolates MIC for a given BL-BLI combination, the MIC value, to my understanding, is referring to the concentration of the beta-lactam. That is the concentration that's at the front portion of the fraction in the test tube. So. I'm gonna walk through and you tell me if I'm right. For example, if the stasis target for tazobactam, which I know you guys have published on before, if the stasis target for tazobactam to restore, for example, ceftolazane activity against a given isolate is something like 66% uh, free time above the threshold concentration. And the threshold concentration, you guys are telling me from your publications, is 0.5 times the MIC of ceftolazane tazobactam. I, as a clinician, I'm going to read off the ceftolazane tazobactam of, for example, 2 slash 4 microgram per ml from the microlab of my specific isolate in question. I will take the 2 of the ceftolazane MIC, multiply it by 0.5 to get to a threshold concentration for taso that I'm looking for of 1 microgram per ml, right? So 2 essentially divided by... Uh, by two, and you get one. So this means, in order to achieve bacterial stasis, I'm aiming for a free tazobactam concentration that is at or above one microgram per mL for at least 66% of the dosing interval. For example, if I'm giving tazobactam as an eight-hour interval in the form of sulbactam tazobactam, I want the tazo to be above uh, free concentration of tazo to be above one for 5.3 hours of that dosing interval. So. That was a lot to like walk through, and I've had to go back and make sure that I'm reading it correctly. Can you confirm if I got it right?
1: So maybe, Julie, since that came from uh, one of our papers, I think maybe I should take the question first. So in brief, you nailed it.
0: Yay, it. gold star.
1: Dingo, okay,
0: I won't lie. I worked hard on that one. Okay.
1: <laughs> Again, this translational relationship is specific to the isolates that we studied in the model. And in that publication, we looked at uh, three strains of Klebsiella pneumonia, three strains of E. coli, they all produced ESBLs as the, as the major enzyme we were worried about. And things can change if you take that same drug combination, septolazine-tazobactam, and you kept it paired with septolazine, but the organism with Pseudomonas aeruginosa to which septolazane is largely stable, but you can get some isolates that produce a, a ton of AMP-C beta-lactamase that can hydrolyze it, well, the relationship will be different the target will be different. And so okay. it's really, um, the, the answers to these questions really are dependent on the isolates set that you've studied and the combination of the beta-lactam and the inhibitor that you
0: Okay. And I very much appreciate you guys letting me go through that example, because especially when you start incorporating the MIC, but when you're actually talking about a BLI, I know for, for me and others, smart people that Read this literature often; it can get a little confusing.
1: Yeah, the, the reason it generally works, Julie, is it's it's a uh, the MIC is a reflection of something. It's like a mirror, almost a funhouse mirror. It's an imperfect mirror, and the MIC captures the hydrolysis rate. Of the enzyme of the beta lactam that it's paired with, and that's why it works. Tazo has no activity of itself. So a lot of people thought when we first put this forward, "What do you mean Tazo doesn't have an MIC? How can you attribute anything to it?" But it works. It, it unifies the data because it's it's capturing something a little bit imperfectly, but it works pretty good.
0: So I very much appreciate you guys helping us to kind of understand again at a broad view what PKPD parameter works best. And the answer is it depends. Okay, so. From my reading of the PKPD literature, there are quite a few factors that impact the restorative effectiveness of BLIs. You mentioned a few, but I'm going to go through the whole list that I've seen in the literature, and you guys can kind of expand on that um, as you see fit. So the first one I saw was efficiency and potency of the beta-lactamase inhibition. So Mike, you already alluded to that, um, that that can impact the relationship we're going to see. Second factor would be the ability of the beta-lactamase inhibitor to reach its target beta-lactamase. So here we're talking about reaching the periplasmic space where it needs to actually bind either as a suicide inhibitor, like these older ones that we have, or a reversible inhibitor like some of the newer agents that we have um, to the target beta-lactamase. Third I saw was the degree of beta-lactamase enzyme expression. Right. So I always think about that as like how many soldiers are on the front line, how many Pac-Man are in the periplasmic space that are going to chew up um, the corresponding beta-lactam. And then fourth, the partnering beta-lactam, its dose, its stability against degradation. Like how good is this partner that we're bringing to the party? And after reading like all of this, It kind of seems like judging BLI activity at the outset feels like you're planning a big party and you don't know how many folks have RSVP'd. You don't know if you'll have sufficient entrances into the event space, and you don't know if your date's gonna be your stable, reliable partner or that fun, but kind of flaky person that slipped into your DMs last week. So my terrible metaphor aside, can you help me understand how do we find the best PKPD parameter for a specific BLI and its threshold exposure? Um, maybe we can use like tazobactam as a case study to
2: walk through this. So Julie, your party planning metaphor actually is pretty useful in terms of how we start to think about um, even before kind of the PKPD parameter set, but just how do we actually think about expressing potency of a beta-lactamase inhibitor uh, as, for its inhibition? And there's been considerable work in the literature and people talking about ratios and, and all that. I think the easiest way is just to think of it as a beta-lactamase inhibitor as just like it's another drug, another drug with its own dose response curve that you got to figure out and then ultimately come up with a dosage regimen. In this case, the, 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 uh, the drug is working against and activating an enzyme, just like it might be working on a, against a mammalian target. This is a bacterial target. So... What we've kind of wrestled with and and thought about is, number one, each BLI has a dose response for inhibition of enzymes, and that's usually expressed in biochemical experiments where you've got KIs we can think about, and we'll come back and talk about on and off rates because that can be important actually in dictating what Partner antibiotics may work with that that uh, drug or not. Each BLI has a dose response curve for reduction of the MIC of the beta lactam. So if you plot beta lactamase inhibitor concentration on the x-axis and you plot the MIC for the corresponding partner antibiotic on the y-axis, it'll look like just like any old dose response curve. That as you increase the BLI, the MIC goes down and eventually. It will bottom out as long as there's no intrinsic activity. It will bottom out just like any other Emax dose-response relationship. What we started to think about then is how could we express the potency of a beta-lactamase inhibitor in combination um, with a beta-lactam in a way that allows us to make comparisons not only, you know, among different beta-lactam uh, partners, but also different beta-lactamase inhibitors. So some way of being able to, let's say, compare clavulinate with tazobactam as it might work in an ESBL combined with the drug like piperacillin or amoxicillin. And in one of our papers, we described a term, everybody's got to have a term these days, um, an MCC, which is a minimum critical concentration for 90% which was the concentration of the beta-lactamase inhibitor that you would need to reduce the MIC of a panel of organisms for a a given partner antibiotic to uh, the 90% of those strains now will be at or below the breakpoint of that corresponding beta-lactam. So for example, if you're talking about ceftazidime and avibactam, you would titrate avibactam concentrations to figure out what concentration of avibactam would be required to bring a panel of, of KPC-producing organisms, uh, MICs, down to less than or equal to eight of ceftazidime, which is its PKPD breakpoint at two gram doses. And so you can use that actually to then um, compare very, various different uh, beta-lactamase inhibitors, and we have a paper that'll be coming out. It was presented at ID Week last year, and it, but it was really one of the most comprehensive surveys that I'm aware of, where we not only compared um, bactam and Vaborbactam and others uh, uh, against bacteria, but we compared them against each other, and and it's oftentimes people are sort of lost with, well, you know, how does this compare, how do these things compare with derlobactam? How does it compare with Avibactam? So we hope that that will be useful uh, with our collaboration. With JMI laboratories to to actually express that. So now, once you've got an MCC, once you know the concentration of the beta-lactamase inhibitor that you need to bring 90% of your strains in there, which is what we'd like to see, you know, we want to develop a useful drug, Now we can sort of open the door on PKPD and start to ask the question and say, okay, if the MCC is four micrograms per ml for that beta-lactamase inhibitor, for example, what's that going to correspond to then in terms of what we're going to need um, in vivo? And so, one really kind of handy way to sort of start with this is to think about that your MCC is like an average free drug concentration in plasma for the beta lactamase inhibitor. Or if you really want to impress friends at your party, you can convert it to an AUC. Like, who, who ever thought that doing an MIC test is actually involving AUCs? Well, if you take four micrograms per ml and just multiply it times, let's say, 24 hours, which is an MIC test, you get 96. And so that begins to give you some insights into how much drug that you're going to have to get to in vivo to do that. It may not. That may not be the metric you may find, uh, depending on what your target is going to be, but you can at least get an idea and say, well, if I can't give ninety-six area counts of drug in vivo, I'm probably not going to have a drug that's going to be clinically useful, at least at, at getting to ninety percent of those strains um, being potentiated.
0: I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I I'm still struggling though a little bit to understand how. How have we done this for a specific molecule? So, and I know that Paul's got a story to tell when it comes to TazoBactam. So, Paul, would you mind taking us uh, taking a trip down memory lane and helping us to understand how we got to our understanding of Tazo?
1: Sure. We took a pretty standard approach. That is, in the background of a fixed antibiotic exposure, we fractionated the total beta lactam exposure into equal exposures administered over different dosing intervals, a very Bill Craigian sort of (laughs) approach to the problem in the background of the antibiotic. Well, things don't fall fully formed from my brain very often, so I'm always stealing from other folks in the field. But so so let's use Tolazin tazobactam as our example. When we set up the experiment, going into that study, I had an hypothesis. I thought it was pretty bright. And that Tazobactam's PKPD drivery driver would change with hydrolytic rate. That is, if it was a very slow hydrolysis rate, kind of all the all the enzyme could be mopped up pretty quick, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't build up again uh, up again fast enough. And Cmax would be the driver. On the other end, if it, if the organism produced lots of beta lactamase a lot of hydrolysis going on. You'd need to keep drug concentration there longer, and it would be time above MIC, and between the two, we would find AUC. So we set up this experiment to test this hypothesis, and the experiment involved three E. coli isogenic strains that we created, each transcribing different levels of CTXM15, and there was a very wide hydrolysis rate from low to high of about 400 to 600 milligrams of ceftolazane being hydrolyzed per minute. So a nice big range there. So in the context of septolazane being administered one gram every eight hours, we fractionated the tazobactam uh, AUCs and administered them either every six hours, eight hours, 12 or 24 hour intervals. So at the end of the day, the findings did not support our hypothesis at all. We were wrong, Um, but we had a really well done experiment and what you could clearly see when we analyzed the data, what drove the PKPD of tazobactam uh, was not the changing hydrolysis rate, but what changed what changed was the magnitude of the tazobactam exposure um, that, that dictated what was going to happen. And so what am I really saying there? I'm saying the time of a threshold described PKPD of uh, tazobactam, regardless of hydrolysis rate and that strains with higher hydrolysis rates required greater thresholds. The threshold was greater for those strains than those with lower hydrolysis rates. And you can see this data was published by us in AAC in 2013, and I'd point you at both figures three and four from that paper. So the next question we asked is, now that we understood that the PKPD driver was time above threshold, we wanted to see what happened when we went to clinical isolates. Right? We used the uh, isogenic strains for a specific reason. They had no efflux pumps, no porins to work with, no other beta-lactamases. We, we narrowed the problem just to the, the beta-lactamase. So now we were going to go on clinical strains. Would, would our relationships hold? What would we learn when we looked at um, real clinical isolates? So we conducted another series of dose range studies now with seven clinical isolates, four were E. coli, three were Klebsiella. They all produced CTXM15 among other beta-lactamase enzymes. And the potentiated MICs uh, were 0.5 to 4. So that was our range of MICs that were in the set of experiments. And we did our experiments again in a context of a one gram every eight hour ceftolazine exposure. And so we just dosed rates ceftolazine in that context. And our results were published in a second AAC paper in that same year in 2013. So the good news coming out of this study was we were able to fit exposure response models to the data for each individual isolate with R-squares that were all very high, 0.9 to 0.99. So really beautiful. The bad news is they didn't pool. If you pooled them all together, it looked like a bunch of spaghetti. Individually, the strains had great R-squares, but together they did not. And you can see this in figure three of our second 2013 AAC publication. And this was a big problem because like my job, you know, what ICPD does is help de-risk drug programs by making sure they have their dose right before their clinical trials. So if you can't reliably predict tazopactin's dose, if every strain is different. And so that was a big problem for us. But now I'm going to let you in on a little secret. And I swear to you that this is true. This data was so perplexing. I brought that spaghetti plot home of the four strains individually fit all in different colors, essentially the same plot you see in figure three of that second AAC paper. And while examining the individual isolate exposure response relationships while watching television with my wife, uh, she's a big fan of dancing with the stars.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The solution
1: to the pooling problem hit me don't ask me how, staring at the data with my eyes, I thought I saw a relationship. That is, if we divided each isolates potentiated MIC by two, the data would pull together. So the next morning, I got to work, I asked our statistician to test my hypothesis, and it worked.
2: The R-square
1: of the pooled data set was uh, 0.84. And if you don't believe me, I'm a really honest guy, and you have to put your methods into your paper. So if you look at that second AOC paper, I call (laughs) your attention to figure four and more importantly, the PKPD analysis subsection of the methods. There I say that the PKPD analyses were done by graphical evaluations that were made while viewing an electric telescope. (laughs) Now that might ask you what the electric telescope is. The electric telescope was the original name for television. And the model number that I put in the manuscript is the model number to my Samsung TV at that time.
0: Oh my gosh, hold on. I got to stop you. Paul, hold on. There's like way too much to unpack here. Okay. So first of all, my co-host, Julian. Other
1: scientists scientists have to be able to reproduce (laughs) the experiment. Is this
0: what you guys do to entertain yourselves? This is hilarious. Okay, so first I got to say, Jillian Hayes, our co-host uh, and producer of Breakpoints, is going to be... Obsessed with the fact that, like, you were watching Dancing with the Stars, that you had this epiphany. She's gonna feel so validated to know that her favorite show, her dream show, that she wants to like win one day, inspires these kind of like scientific breakthroughs. But then, okay, how did you get that Easter egg of your Samsung TV past the peer reviewers in AAC? I I need to know.
1: You know, I have no idea. Some reviewers read really tightly, and others not so much. (laughs) It was a gamble. I thought, I got lucky.
2: Oh my god. Mike, have you done something like this before? Well, you know, you always sort of joke about putting something in either a report or a manuscript that just is so absurd just to sort of, you know, see if anybody actually reads the, you know, read read the manuscript or read the report, but That one may be the first one that I've actually heard somebody admit to. um, That's actually (laughs) still in, in print. I mean, it's, uh, uh, that, that, you know, all, all I got to say is that, you know, it's a, it it was, they were probably dancing the tango so that you kind of thought about two things. Right. And, uh, I, guess, oh, I see uh, what
0: you did there. Okay, hey, we have to have fun amidst the science. All right. Yes. As long as the internal validity of the analyses still hold, I'm still picking up what you're putting down, Paul. So for what <laughs> it's worth, <laughs> we will make all of these papers available in the show notes for our listeners. So you guys can go in. And if you really want to go ahead and read the electric telescope at it it's there. Yep. Mm-hmm. He totally got yep. the Samsung TV model number in the paper. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh, I think I interrupted your story, though, Paul. <laughs> what happened next? I'm a little scared to ask.
1: What? So so the data from that uh, first 2013 AAC paper was used by Cubis to support the PKPD driver uh, in combination with ceftolazane for drug regulators, and the data from the second paper uh, in 2013 were used to support uh, tazobactam dose in combination with septolazane and ultimately the susceptibility test interpretive criteria uh, with both drug regulators and the Clinical Laboratory Standards Institute. And subsequent uh, to that series of studies with septolazane, tazobactam, we conducted dose fractionation studies with piperacillin tazobactam with that same isogenic triplet set I mentioned early on with septolazane. Um, and we found time above threshold, and we then did studies with cefepime, and we again found time above threshold. And some of that information can be seen in an AAC publication in 2016, and I'd refer you to figure four uh, in that particular paper.
0: Wow, that's a fascinating history. I'm really happy I asked you to explain the story of tasobactam now. I, I'm
1: so done with tasobactam. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Okay, so, no, but, but in, in truth, I don't think that I realized that it was the evaluation of tazobactam with ceftolozane that in fact came first and spurred the reevaluation because Piptazo is was already on the market, right? But now that I hear you tell the story, it actually makes total sense that we're using the novel scientific methods we have from modern drug development of something like ceftolazane-Tazobactam as a potential combo to then go back and understand our older existing BLBLI combinations as well. So that, I mean, all joking aside, it's really great to see that our novel scientific methods are being applied and helping us understand our older existing agents. So with all of these incredible studies that you've mentioned, um, like I said, again, they're all in the show notes. They're there, all the Easter eggs included. <laughs> um, I do also want to point out to our listeners that um, SIDP did publish an insights article in pharmacotherapy in 2021 by uh, Maggie Minogan and colleagues, that essentially tells this very similar story. So if you're one of those folks that prefer to see this in print, uh, it's a little hard to follow uh, via the podcast. I strongly encourage you to take a look at that paper. Similarly, if you have a trainee that wants to understand about a candidate, BLI story when it comes to PKPD. I really enjoyed the way that those authors laid this out. And I'll be honest, both of you are all up and down that uh, reference list for citations. Um, It does a really good job of describing the role of tazobactam-based combinations for the management of infections due to ESBL-producing enterobacterellis. So it's a good read. We'll throw that in the show notes as well uh, for you all. I know the reading list is getting long, but you know we'll take our time as we go through. All right. So I know not all BLIs are created equal. I'm curious, and maybe Mike, you can help me with this one. How does the story of one more candidate, let's talk about Vaborbactam combined with meropenem. How does it compare with what we found with Tezo?
2: Yeah. We had the luxury here of kind of starting with this kind of brand new class of, of, of agents. And, and uh, just like Paul recounted there, you sort of had the old Tazobactam, you had to sort of unwind a lot of uh, urban legend about how Tazobactam was working with piperacillin to really understand how it worked uh, with using ceftolazine and then rewrite history. They were We really had kind of a, a blank canvas to work on with a brand new class of drugs. And so Maybe I'll start with kind of the, the, you know, with with understanding fully characterizing the in vitro properties using that MCC concept or what concentration of the drug were you going to need to be able to bring your target um, isolate list down into the meropenem susceptible um, range. And then I think, you know, the story then shifts to pharmacokinetics. And the, and the shift then at that point, you say, okay, you know, if we need if we can get there with four or eight micrograms per ml of a fixed concentration of vaporbactam to hit, to bring 90% of those KPC-producing strains um, down into the meropenem susceptible range, you know, how are we going to kind of now start to translate that into um, dosage regimens um, with a partner antibiotic in that case, uh, in this case being meropenem? So first of all, we were, we were um, certainly aware of the data in the literature that two gram doses of meropenem infused over three hours were very well tolerated. It, nobody had done a controlled trial, but there was a lot of experience do, uh, coming out of Hartford. There was a lot of experience coming out of other areas of really using that dosage regimen. So we said, okay, we will optimize the dosage regimen of meropenem. And so that's kind of the, the the rule number one here is optimize Batman's dosage regimen. Make sure that the beta lactam is being given faithfully at its highest possible dose in the best way to give it. And giving a higher dose of meropenem, giving it as a three hour infusion um, wasn't possible. I'll get I'll do a little reveal here is that when we initially we actually had in mind using a drug called biopenem to be the partner um, carbapenem antibiotic. But you couldn't give biopenem at a high enough dose to actually be able to really optimize its PKPD properties, um, which would have been nice because it's not an effluxed carbapenem, but you couldn't give it at a high enough dose. So we went to meropenem with experience that was in the clinic with uh, two gram doses. Number two, it turned out that Faber-Bactam's pharmacokinetics were pretty superimposable to that of meropenem. So that kind of made things really easy because, you know, when things have the same pharmacokinetics, the same half-life, the same volume as distribution, um, Keith Rodvold uh, and Eric Wenzler did work in uh, ELF uh, and showed that the uh, two curves were superimposable, even in ELF of uh, meropenem at that dose with vaporbactam at a two-gram dose. So it really became pretty easy then to sort of say, well, these drugs probably, ought to be dosed um, if they're tolerated at their maximum doses, and they'll have pharmacokinetic properties that are going to parallel each other coming down. And when we did studies in renal impairment, if you plot... Uh, GFR or measure of, of renal function against clearance of the uh, of either vaborbactam or meropenem, the two lines are parallel. So each decrement in renal function uh, resulted in a similar decrement in clearance of the um, corresponding either beta lactam or beta lactamase inhibitor. So that made that stuff really easy. Um, so and and vaborbactam was extremely well tolerated. So. What we did did is is using the same kinds of tools that Paul has described of doing PKPD work in hollow fiber as well as in animal models. We really understood then what the exposures that were associated with um, efficacy, and it was 24-hour AUC to MIC uh, ratio, 24-hour AUC for Vaborbactam normalized to the MIC of, uh, of meropenem in the presence of Vaborbactam. Bactam. So that metric that, that Paul mentioned uh, earlier fit really well, and we found that a Vaborbactam uh, uh, AUC to MIC of around 38 was what, what our target was going to be for a one-log drop. So, with that and with clinical data that we generated in Phase 3, clinical data that we generated in Phase 1, Paul's team led by Sujata Bhavnani um, really did an, uh, an outstanding job of now taking all that information. Looking at then this in a joint probability um, uh, way, which really is now the, kind of the modern way to look at these um, these drugs together, where you ask the question that I need 40 percent, you know, anywhere from 30 to 40 percent time above MIC for meropenem. If I can get there by the meropenem by itself, well, great. Then we don't care about vaborbactam's exposures, but. Obviously, for KPC-producing strains, we needed uh, the beta-lactamase inhibitor. So we were actually able to ask the question that in an individual patient, do they have the right meropenem exposures? Do, and also, do they have the right Vaporbactam exposures? And so we were able to do that for varying degrees of renal impairment and really showed that you were able to get over a whole spectrum of renal function then, um, those exposures, those target exposures for both Vaporbactam as well as meropenem. And so that, for us, you know, then makes it really easy then um, for clinicians to use those two drugs together because they really do are very well-behaved pharmacokinetically individually, but they also behave pharmacokinetically well in combination.
0: Yeah, I very much appreciate that story. Um, so many good nuggets in there. First of all, I was always floored that there was like 2 grams worth of Vabor as a BLI in a dose. That was like the highest that I had seen of like this next gen of BLBLIs that were coming to the market. And I was really excited because I was like, I think I'm hitting the target. I don't know what the target is, but I think I'm hitting it. Right. So that was nice to to hear. Um, and you also helped me understand what happened with Biopenem because I, I was watching and I was like, where did Biopenem go? So th- these are the kind of nuggets that we're here for on, on breakpoints to be sure. Um, Paul, I'll, I'll toss it over to you. Any, any thoughts on this particular story with this separate it BLI.
1: Sure. I, I just want to riff a little bit more on on uh, Mike's comment. One of the things Mike uh, didn't say when he picked that big dose of the beta lactamase inhibitor, it was really uh, it was really a lot of thought about treating carbapenem resistant isolates, right? At, at the higher MIC margins, Why didn't to cover MICs like sixteen, right? right. Uh, uh, strains you probably are so infrequent, you won't find them in the product label. So it was really designed really to make Vabermere quite special in that it could treat uh, uh, MIC values, if you will, that were beyond the reach of other, of other drugs. And it was very commendable, even though they didn't get in the product label to, to take that kind of approach.
2: Thanks for mentioning that, Paul. I mean, that you and you were sort of exhorting us all the way about that. It's like, don't just think about now. Think about what's going to happen 10 years from now when MICs are starting to shift up there, being able to cover um, those organisms that are going to be in that 8 to 16 range, uh, which you can uh, with those doses, are going to be important.
0: As a clinician, I can say that I very much appreciate that. So if I'm giving a dose of meropenem, vaborbactam, we're giving it as, you know, four grams IV every eight hours is a three hour infusion for normal renal function. And that's, you know, two grams of the marrow, two grams of of the vaborbactam. I agree that in my mind's eye, I'm normally treating a deep-seated KPC infection. It's probably life-threatening. I'm going for cure And I'll be honest, a lot of the patients that I end up seeing in South Carolina, they do have retained sources of infection. That's why they got a serious KPC infection in the first place. And I do, in the back of my mind, worry about heteroresistance at that nitis of infection. And I might see some of those MICs of 16 if I were to, like, scrape the surface of that, you know, prosthetic hip joint that nobody's taking out that's infected. So uh, that's all theoretical, right? Um, But I did very much appreciate that when that product came to market, it was clear that the developers were trying to optimize the exposures um, as much as possible to maximize effectiveness while also making sure that it was still safe for the patient. So thank you (laughs) for giving us uh, these new tools uh, in the toolbox that helped me put Polymixin B in the dumpster where it deserves to be. So Okay, I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit. Acknowledging the mountain of science that you've both pursued in this space, there's one question that I really have to ask you. What the heck is going on with performance of susceptibility testing in the clinical micro lab when it comes to these BLBLIs? It seems all over the place. So stay with me for a second, but I went, down the rabbit hole of the CLSI uh, guidebook, and I'm looking, and for amoxclav, or excuse me, amoxicillin clavulanate and ampicillin sulbactam, we perform MIC testing across a range of concentrations in a fixed two to one ratio. Yet for most other BLBLIs like piperacillin-tazobactam, ceftolazane-tazobactam, et cetera, we're doing fixed BLI concentrations. Often what I'm seeing is four micrograms per ml across the whole series of concentrations. Some of the BLBLIs are using eight. But regardless, it's a fixed BLI concentration across the range of corresponding beta-lactam concentrations. I'll be honest, I'm pretty sure that my septic shock patient who is an augmented renal clear in the ICU only has four microgram per ml of tazobactam in his bloodstream or more for like a fraction of the dosing interval. So I struggle when I'm reading. Um, and some, I mean, some micro labs don't even report the BLI concentration. They like leave out the the forward slash four, right? The 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 second half of that concentration. And they just report the BL concentration on the BLBli. So I'm a little confused. I'm not quite sure how we got here. I'm sure there's history to be told. But what I really want to know is, in your opinion, how should I best use these susceptibility tests as a clinician?
1: Sure. I'll I'll start off. Um, Well, I think with susceptibility testing in general, it's important to keep the end in mind. With regard to susceptibility test methods, the end is really about predicting efficacy. That said, I don't really care um, if a drug, a BLI, uh, or any, an antibiotic straight up, to be honest with you, is tested in some fixed concentration or some ratio. What I really care about is the MIC test predicts effect. So for instance, when we conduct exposure response analyses using in vitro model data, like a hollow fiber model or a mouse model, or when we're doing an- analyses of clinical data, The the AUC to MIC ratio should do a better job explaining variance in response than AUC alone, right? And if it doesn't, that's a real problem because if if adding MIC to it confounds the relationship, makes it worse, or doesn't improve the relationship um, with AUC alone, then why are we doing the MIC test at all, right? Who needs it, right? So your point about, you know... Just kind of jumping back to one of the things you said earlier, your point about patients with high drug clearance is a good one. If if it's any solace to you, I can tell you that today we routinely are now conducting PKBD target attainment analyses to support doses in patients with very high renal clearance. That's now something new the regulators have begun to ask for. So I think with some of the new programs, um, you're actually going to begin to see some dosing guidance in those patient populations.
2: Yeah, Julie, I, you know, and, and your, your example with um, oxycelin clavulinate. I, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say about that other than probably that's a, uh, that's probably one of the things that came out of the nineties or eighties that wasn't so good, um, that it was, uh, I think that there was a simplistic, um, concept about that. Well, we're we're given doses in in ratios. Why not do the susceptibility test in, in uh, in in ratios? Because you know, it's certainly, uh, in those ages, um, there was not a lot of um, of thought about given about how to kind of configure the test and have it line up with what the uh, the administration you know drug administration and dosage would be. You know, I think if you kind of you know, it's like Paul's and, and my old mentor used to, Dick Quintiliana used to talk about even a broken clock is right twice a day. And I think um, with amoxicillin clavulanate, I think that's one of those um, that I would say is even a broken clock is right twice a day. And if you think about what you should be, you know, I, I would not be using amoxicillin clavulinate to treat an enterobacterialis infection, anything other than maybe in the urinary tract. And so in the urinary tract, you probably probably get enough of both of the drugs that sort of overwhelm the system. So no matter whatever whatever test that you're doing or format that you're doing, it, it comes out all right. But I sure wouldn't rely on amoxicillin and clavulinate to treat an enterobacterialis infection uh, anywhere else.
1: So, so I'd like to kind of add on to Mike because I, I think uh, I'm going to throw some old names out there because Mike and I were just lamenting how old we are compared to probably every listener on here. But uh, but maybe Eugene and Christine Sanders got it right. Right, they were out of Nebraska. They were really some of the, the early leaders in beta-lactamase inhibitors and had a big hand in a lot of the stuff Glaxo, SmithKline was doing at the time. And the reason I say maybe they got it right is is only that we're probably ICPs probably the only group that looked at the PKPD of clavulanate. <laughs> You know because we were doing the full court press on so many other beta-lactamase inhibitors why not have a little bit of data on the original and what we found for the enzymes it was targeting that uh AUC MIC did a great job of describing the data set so regardless if it doesn't make you know maybe the right thing is you know, uh, I'm just saying it worked. It, yeah. It, it pulled the pharmacodynamic data together, that MIC value. Was there another method that would have pulled it tighter? I don't know. Maybe. Right. But it did a pretty good job.
0: Well, and I, I just think the variability in the current status of what we're doing for antimicrobial susceptibility testing is is a quirk that I don't think many ID specialists realize uh, when they first get into the field. And if you're so lucky to have to sit down and, you know, get your automated susceptibility testing cards set up and choose between them for either your stewardship program or your ID division and whatnot, then all of a sudden this question pops up. And I remember the first time I came across it, I was like, I don't know why these are different. Is this arbitrary? Is this history? Is this uh, a reason? I mean, I I agree with you, Mike. It's probably just the, the way that history unfolded uh, in the 90s for when these agents came to the market. I have not found uh, data to suggest otherwise. Maybe if, if someone out there knows they can they can kind of send us a note and we'll comment back on it. But I'll say like at least for right now we're dealing with, you know, carbapenem resistant acinetobacter and using ceftazidime and that, you know, harking back all the way to the beginning, we're talking about a BLI that also has intrinsic activity and binds to the PBPs for for these crab isolates that we're going for. I'm actually kind of glad that I have fixed ratios with different solbactam concentrations in every well so that I actually do potentially get some information on direct solbactam uh, activity for that particular isolate. Do I need it for the E. coli? Probably not. But, you know, so here we are. Uh, but at, if we're doing the deep dive and we're talking about BLIPKPD, I felt like I had to bring this up because it's definitely something that I know lots of SIDP members have, have talked about and kind of scratched their heads on. Okay, so we've covered quite a bit um, over this podcast episode so far. I kinda wanna give you guys a chance to look forward. I know you guys have been at the forefront of developing lots of the agents that we're using um, in today's day and age, and I know that your work continues. So in your opinion, what's on the horizon for BLI drug development? And what are the scientific questions that you are most excited uh, that we can hopefully answer when it comes to BLI PKPD?
2: Yeah, so maybe uh, uh, maybe I'll start here and and uh, and then and then see where Paul takes us as well. You know, we, as I mentioned, we had started with a discovery program with BLIs that um, started back in you know, the 2010 with KPC becoming um, really rampant in some of the U.S. hospitals, and we've continued to kind of innovate on, on boronates um, uh, in a discovery program as well, and and. We've, you know, as we sort of looked at where you could go um, with a boronate um, uh, pharmacophore, we really started thinking about um, going obviously broader within terms of enzymes, um, and, and so hi- inhibiting really the key enzymes, not just the serine enzymes like KPC and ESBLs and so forth, but then moving into metallo- um, um a- as well. But then also moving into um, beyond enderobacter and pseudomonas and also being able to move into uh, acinetobacter. Um, and then I think finally with, with those is then asking the question, can we develop then a um, a drug? That could be used with multiple different partner beta lactams, and so you know uh, the the paradigm has been is is that you sort of have these fixed combinations um, together, and lots of people have thought about being able to maybe combine them together, or we sort of scab together, you know, cefazolin avibactam with aztreonam being given in combination, because we want to reach into the the avicaz vial and grab uh, um, avibactam to be able to combine it with uh, trianam, and those are clunky ways to do things um, because you know you've got dosage. You're, you're, you mentioned sulbactam. You know you you you, you get a, you get a bonus when trying to treat Acinetobacter with sulbactam with a whole bunch of acid ampicillin that comes along with that in the current configuration. So th- it's a, it's a clunky way of, of doing that. And we started to think about really that using these drugs with, with multiple different partner beta lactams. And I would say that you know now. I would not develop a beta-lactam by itself. I think the day has come now where the resistance mechanisms are complex enough, you you have efflux, you have permeability mutations, you have lots of enzymes. I think it's a fool's errand to develop a beta-lactam by itself now because I think the resistance mechanisms are just going to overwhelm you too quickly. So if you want a durable drug, you got to have it. I think it needs to be developed in combination um, with a partner beta-lactamase inhibitor. So... With that said, how do you kind of do that? So not only being able to have ultra broad spectrum inhibition of it, lots of enzymes, not only being able to work in what we call the big three, you know, Acinetobacter, Enterobacteriaceae, and Pseudomonas. And also now being able to work with, co- with multiple partner beta-lactams, where then you've got to be thinking about making sure that your compound isn't susceptible to intrinsic resistance mechanisms like efflux and poron uh, mutations. And so that's where um, we've really come to in terms of developing um, newer agents for not only just coformulation with beta-lactam antibiotics, but thinking about how they could be co-administered with multiple different beta-lactam antibiotics, um, like what we do in other areas of medicines and antiretroviral therapy, we have booster agents. We had a booster agent, uh, uh, you know, as part of Paxlovid, which worked by pharmacokinetic mechanisms. But thinking about this same type of thing, but now as a drug that could be actually given by itself uh, and optimized uh, for use with a given partner beta-lactam. You know, I think what I have took away from the paper that you mentioned earlier that was uh, uh, the um, SIDP viewpoint on tazobactam was is we probably don't really have the tazobactam doses right um, in these fixed combination products or we would probably like to be able to optimize the tazobactam dose in certain patient populations, um, so that we ensure that there's enough tazobactam there. And I think that's going to be, I think, a theme. Just like we talk about individualizing beta-lactam exposures, we ought to be individualizing beta-lactamase inhibitor exposures. But we can't do that if they're cobbled together always in the same vial. And so I. Our exhortation is to not start thinking about how these drugs could be optimized uh, by co-administration rather than co-formulation.
0: That just sparked my my memory when you said that, Mike. I always try to teach my trainees when we were we were talking about whether or not we would trust piperacillin-tazobactam to treat a serious ESBL infection. We went through the Merino trial data and all this other stuff, but I wanted the learner to come to their own conclusions. And I said, well, what do you think are the response curves that you're going to get in this patient with piperacillin and then again with tazobactam? And they were really floored when they realized how quickly the tazobactam was being eliminated from the body, even in patients that had renal impairment, like you give it and it just like runs away. And so I, I remember looking at that and and that kind of is when the light bulb clicked for them, that we're, if this does work, we're cutting it from a, to razor thin exposure for the tazobactam and we would feel a lot better if we could maximize that. So we do what we can, right? We maximize the dosing, we extend the infusion, we, you know, we'll do all the fancy things that uh, pharmacists at the bedside are going to do. But I agree that, um, again, as we get better at understanding BLI PKPD, I'm encouraged to see some of the newer agents having, um, it looks like much better probability of target attainment across both. So, um, thank you for letting me comment on that. Paul, I'll turn it uh, over to you. What do do you see on the horizon that you're excited about?
1: Well, it's, it's it's hard to follow Mike there because I think there's a bit of overlap and, uh, in our views of the future, but I'd like to see a standalone BLI too. And, and again, like many things, it's not an original thought of mine. I remember over 10 years ago, uh, having conversations with Mike Dudley, with Tom Parr, talking about why, why this wasn't possible, why we couldn't do this. And uh, about a decade ago, it's literally a decade, although the publication isn't, the, uh, isn't quite a decade old yet. Um, we got an opportunity to work on a program like that, a standalone beta-lactamase inhibitor program, and our results were published in AAC in 2017. And they were largely held quiet or back for quite some time because the sponsor at the time didn't want the world to know uh, what they were doing yet. But it was Cubist was uh, was a company we we're working with, and with a, a compound called CB618, which is a DBA, uh, DBO class. Uh, beta-lactamase inhibitor. And so we did, and this was right on the heels, following right off all the work we did with tazobactam, we jumped in to work with this DBO, and we studied its PKPD with four different beta-lactams at two different dose levels and varying dosing intervals against eight enterobacteriaceae, producing a, wild, a wide spectrum of uh, beta-lactamases. So these were all clinical isolates. And we were able to identify a dose that uh, was able to get these data uh, co-model actually pretty good. And that's table uh, one and figure four in that AAC paper from 2017. Um, what especially excited me about the data was that across these, these beta-lactam classes, there was a cephapine, muropenem. Uh, there may have been something else in there, I, I forget. Um, and different beta-lactam dose levels and all these different beta-lactamases that we were able to get that data to co-model so nicely. And that is basically, we could identify a beta-lactamase inhibitor exposure that rescued six different regimens in that, in that paper. And, and I, we really felt at the time, and I still do, that that standalone approach would be very useful to combat the rising problems that Mike just talked about with beta-lactamase-producing bacteria our current strategy is pretty stale, pair uh, beta-lactam X with BLIY in this fixed combination, and that's it. And it's a really limiting strategy. It's, it doesn't look very far away when one recognizes that the optimal pairing, if you will, is dependent on the spectrum of the beta, beta- beta-lactamase is produced and the frequency of resistance to the combination and so on. And I think that standalone combination um, would re- really be a big benefit for clinicians, and I, I can also tell you um, that we got so far with that program is to have conversations with drug regulators, right? And the pushback was it was really, what if somebody forgets to give the beta lactam? Right, You know, right. They, they raised right. safety concerns at that time, and hopefully things have changed. A lot of a lot of water has gone under the bridge now. Uh, from then to now, you know, basically a decade. And, and hopefully things have changed and, and um, I'd love to see that come, come to be. Yeah. You know, one,
2: just one other um, aspect, I think just to add to this um, and, and again, to the complexity of, of, of thinking about this and it has to do with sort of the going back to the basics of, of kind of characterizing the uh, the compounds and and the kind of the dose response and understanding of the kinetics of, of inhibition and um, and that that for example um looking at um and looking at axa23 and so we certainly would like to ha- you know we like having um there are only a few um, uh, compounds that actually will work in Acinetobacter and inhibit Oxa twenty three uh, as part of that Durobactam is one Zerbactam on the boronate side is is the corresponding um, boronate that that does that. Well, what's interesting is is that here's where the kinetics of kind of how the inhibitor works with the enzyme, that being on and off rates may have some. Um, Relevance in terms of whether or not you're going to be able to have a broad spectrum inhibitor that would work with multiple different partner beta lactams. So, Derlobactam works great uh, in potentiating the activity of sulbactam. Sulbactam is relatively stable to carbapenemases uh, like OXA and and but sulbactam clearly, you know, adds a lot um, to uh, sulbactam and being able to uh, potentiate that. But if you actually look at Derlobactam in combination with a carbapenem, it doesn't work very well. Like imipenem. it doesn't work very well. And the explanation of this observation appears to be that, that this interplay, as I mentioned earlier, between on and off rates and lability of the partner betalactam to the lactamase. So... In the case of Solbactam, I mentioned that it's, um, that it's relatively stable to OXA-23, but it's hydrolyzed more slowly. But, but Derlobactam has a slow on rate for OXA-23, but it's good enough to be able to protect Solbactam, and you get good potentiation. But if you do the same experiment, production of an OXA-23 carbapenemase, now in, case, in the case with uh, Imipenem, doesn't work with imipenem because that on rate is being so slow, and imipenem being really a good substrate for hydrolysis by um, the oxa 23 carbapenemase, you won't see that potentiation of derlobactam Dur- in combination with a carbapenem like you do with sulbactam. So that, I think that, you know, gets starts to scratch the surface about what you have to think about. It'd be great to have standalone inhibitors that you could combine with multiple different drugs, but you've got to have the right inhibitor that's going to have the kind of uh, spectrum and the right kinetics of inhibition so it may work um, in combination with, with multiple drugs. And we've found inhibitors that will do that. We haven't found uh, beta-lactam that doesn't benefit by the addition of uh, a drug like xerobarbactam. Um, uh, uh, the the you know, obviously it doesn't do anything for non lactamase mediated resistance mechanisms like efflux and permeability. If that's a problem with your partner beta-lactam, you're going to be stuck with that. But I think, you know, being able to really then think depthfully about, well, it's probably a good idea to have a compound that has a fast on rate to really be able then to work in those compounds that are going to be uh, more labile to hydrolysis in the uh, following early exposures.
0: Awesome. I distinctly remember, Mike, it was you and I, I think we were sitting around a fire somewhere during like ID fellowship form. It was also about a decade ago. And little naive Julie, I was sitting there and I was like, can you make me a standalone, be a line of, Mike, do you remember this conversation that we had? (laughs) And I remember you were lamenting at the time a lot of the same concerns that Paul brought up. And, you know, having been at the bedside for a couple of years now, I definitely, I can definitely see the benefit. I think we're all on team standalone BLI, but I also know how complicated it can be. And again, pharmacist, uh, my job first is to make sure that we do no harm. Um, There's going to have to be a lot of kinks that we would have to work out in the package labeling for an agent like that in making sure that we're mitigating uh, patient safety risks, uh, such that someone doesn't get uh, BLI alone without a corresponding beta-lactam and, and so on. So, um, I'm putting the call out to our SIDP members. Hopefully, we can be part of the folks that are going to come and provide some solutions for for some of this, because I do think we probably need this, uh, but it's, it's going to get more complicated before it gets simpler. So, that brings us now to our favorite segment of the pod, which we call I Feel Nerdy. So I Feel Nerdy is a safe space to nerd out over your favorite ID topics, quirks and fun facts. Mike, you know about I Feel Nerdy very well. Paul is your first time on the pod. So here you get to go, you get to go full out. I mean, I feel like we've been incredibly nerdy this entire podcast, but if in case you didn't feel like you can nerd out enough, this is your moment. So here's my question for you guys for this segment. In your opinion, what is the most impressive beta-lactamase inhibitor and why? Mike, I'll go to you first.
2: Okay. Well, I think, you know, um, for obvious reasons, you know, sort of asking me to pick the most impressive inhibitor is maybe a little Mm -hmm. bit like asking me to choose between my children. So, oh, so if, okay. if so <laughs> maybe if, but, but if I can maybe riff on that a little bit and kind of take it into the direction of that, well, if I, if I won't tell you my favorite inhibitor, how about if I tell you my favorite lactamase my favorite go enzyme? Go for it. Okay? Yes. All right. So here you go. Uh, any, uh, uh, well, I want to ask you to guess. So hands down, I think it's NDM. It's, it's the NDM metallic really? lactamase. Yes. And
0: that would not have been my guess. Okay. Yeah.
2: No, it, it and I think it, it, took me a little while to kind of pick that, but I, let me tell you why. And I think a lot of it has to do, you know, is kind of the, the, the biology. And I think also with respect to it, I'll bring the inhibitor thing back, back into this. First, NDM um, is evolving to become more resistant in in multiple different ways and and it's really interesting to see what's happening um, with respect to um, its uh, its mutations first and foremost it, it, it's becoming more efficient in that it's using zinc better um, it's actually becoming a better enzyme with lower amounts of zinc that are required um, for this and this I think was some of the controversy early on was like, well, you know, you have zinc in the media, and is that kind of overcalling resistance due to NDM and so forth? Well, NDM has been chugging away, causing infections in patients, and mutating now so that it can basically, NDM can function in the presence of very, very low amounts of zinc um, that might occur in vivo. So if you look at now the NDMs as they've now, I don't remember how many they are up to, I think maybe up to 20 or 25 now, if you look at those, there's been a steady progression that it's more efficient at being able to use zinc in terms of being able to hydrolyze um, beta-lactams and car- carbapenems. Um, and, and I think that's um, really cool uh, in terms of what it's being able to do that. Secondly, you say
0: cool. I yeah, say I terrifying. Yeah, going. terrifying. It's fine.
2: But I mean, it's it's definitely NDM is on the move um, for sure, um, in terms of being able to become better at at what it's able, um, what it's able to do. The second thing is is that, um, is that it's mutating with some of these variants um, in terms of being able to then now become resistant to certain inhibitors. Um, and Perel and, and colleagues recently reported that the NDM-9 variant um, that has been reported in um, various different uh, locales, including... Um, frequently actually in some areas in Europe now, is now resistant to inhibition um, by t- Tanibor-Bactam. Uh, and hence it's resistant to cefepime tanibor a drug that's not on the market yet, a drug that uh, that just recently had the uh, uh, NDA filed. So. We obviously saw that and said, well, that's pretty interesting about now that we're getting resistance um, in NDM-9 uh, to uh, inhibitors. You know, why is that? And does it have an impact on some of the compounds that um, we have been looking at? So we looked in our database. We found that we had indeed strains that were um, that produced NDM-9. And we found that bactam was active against these NDM-9 uh, variants. Well, so... That then begged the question, well, why is that? Uh, why is this any different than other um, inhibitors of NDM like tanniborbactam So we looked at where these mutations were occurring in NDM9. Um, it's not in the active site, but it is happening in areas that are important for binding of tanniborbactam but not for 0 And in fact, um, what you find then in those resistance in NDM9, it results in a change from a negatively charged glutamate, which is important for binding taniborbactam in NDM9, it changes it to a positively charged lysine. And what that does then, a positive, you know, it doesn't take much to say if you change a negative charge to a positive charge, you get two positive charges together, what's going to happen? They're boom, they're going to repel each other. And so that's the um, mutation that is responsible now to resistance in NDM9 to tanniborbactam bactam. Fortunately, in our design of zero bactam, we didn't rely upon any interactions with zero bactam out in, in, in the hinterlands of where those mutations occur in NDM9. And hence, that's an explanation of why then you don't see any changes in zero bactam activity because those mutations in NDM9 are happening Happening in a place that's distinct from uh, where uh, zero barbactam has to bind. So you know, for me, NDM gets the you know gets the uh, um, get, gets the nod here for being pretty creative here about not only being becoming a, a more efficient user of zinc, but also to be able to mutate um, uh, to uh, anticipate availability of certain beta lactamase inhibitors.
0: I just have to add, I'm very glad that I went to medicinal chemistry class in pharmacy school in person because I was able to follow along. That <laughs> that's cool <laughs> trip stuff, isn't it? The, but no, but it actually is amazing. Uh, I remember I saw that that same paper about the NDM nine, and then I went down the rabbit hole of the correspondence with the hetero resistance and all that from Abbott and colleagues. So, anyway, we won't go there. That's for another pod for another day. However. I do think it's fascinating what you guys are trying to do in looking at each one of these BLIs and get all the way down to the detailed uh, crystallography and formation of the, both the beta-lactamases and how you have binding happening. Like, I mean, it's, this is why we're pharmacists. And I think that definitely meets the bar of sufficiently nerdy for the I feel nerdy segment. So, Mike, I will accept your answer, even though you didn't answer my question. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I'm still in a safe place, though, right?
0: Yes, absolutely, right, 100%. Right, we can keep talking about it afterward. All right. Very Paul, good. your turn.
1: Sure, uh, I'll disappoint Mike. Uh, it's not one of Mike's beta-lactamase inhibitors. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding there. I say that sarcastically because, you know, with what we do at ICPD is really about de-risking programs, and we don't really call winners and losers. We say, how can we make this drug the, the, the safest, most effective drug it, it, it can be? And so I would say my favorite BLI is the ones we're working on at any moment in time. They're just, that's just the baby of the moment. But that being said, I think if I was forced to answer it, I'd answer it a little bit more broadly. And I'd say it would be those that are truly chasing a large unmet medical need. And that may sound boring, but I still think that's ESBLs. And uh, an oral drug for ESBL. So I'll go a little further. I'll say it's oral. It should be oral. It's a BLI would be my favorite. It's the biggest need. And I think about that, especially when I realize, you know, a lot of people, oh, that's 10 or 12, 15% of, you know, E. coli, you know, not that big a deal. It could be worse. Well, it is worse in a lot of parts of the world, depending Mm -hmm. on the organism uh, you're talking about. There are parts of this world where ESBLs are so bad Take Salmonella typhi, a bug that we don't think about as often here. We're up to seventy percent of them are sporting ESBLs in a region. There are parts of the world like Nepal that the number one reason for being in a hospital is typhoid. Right? Yeah. People yeah, are yeah, dying yeah. from diarrhea, guys. And these enzymes yeah, have made yeah. their way into Salmonella and to Shigella. So when I think more globally, to me, it's clearly it's an oral drug. It's it's something that can handle ESBL. So happy if it does other things too, Mike. But if it can do that, I think uh, that would do more for the nature of the good than, than a lot of things we work on.
0: All Good right. Work. So I'm going to go out there on a limb and say you guys are not allowed to retire anytime soon. You have a lot of work left to do in your careers, not least of which is teaching us how to use these agents coming forward. So uh, from from all of us, thank you for all the work that you've uh, poured into this field. Um, I definitely can tell you stories of patients' lives that have been saved from these agents that both of you have worked on. So with that, I want to thank you both for joining me today. And thank you, our loyal audience, for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Julianne Justo, and our featured speakers have been Drs. Paul Ambrose and Mike Dudley. Breakpoints was created by myself, Julianne Justo, Erin McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Doctors Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard. It was edited by Carly Schifko and peer-reviewed by Diego McClayton and Wes Hoffman. Our production team includes Veronica Zafonte and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.